Okay, Tom, I am ready to record. Are you sure this outfit I'm wearing is really necessary? Yeah, we've talked about this. We've upped our production quality for Current Geek, sure, but there's still more we can do. I know, I know, but motion capture on an audio podcast, I, I just don't think I get it. You got to think big picture, Scott. We're already seeing AI voice assistants being made specifically to read the news. How much longer until they can be programmed to convincingly talk about movies? Well, I mean, I don't think. Or D&D. Well, geez, I guess that would really stink, or but... Or World of Warcraft. That's it. You know what? Suck it, AI. Let's put on these ping-pong monkey suits and make some podcasting history. You know, Tom, 2020. I know, Scott, I know. You know what 2020 has really been lacking, though? I mean, besides travel, in-person events, comforting sounds of good friends' laughter. No, Tom, a summer of big-budget CGI movies. Hey, at least we got Hamilton, a recording of a stage play. But I know what you mean. Almost doesn't seem like summer without all those effects that are so special. But the gift that 2020 cinemalist summer has given me is some time to think about these kinds of movies. It's kind of nice to think that even under layers of computer-generated graphics, we still need human actors. Yeah, even a couple of decades into the move to CGI, you'd think we'd be able to just render an Avengers movie in a server farm, record some voice actors, and call it a day. Well, it turns out that humans are actually pretty good at telling if something is human or not. It's a phenomenon you've probably heard of before called the Uncanny Valley. Why, yes, I have. The Uncanny Valley was originally identified in the field of robotics by Masahiro Mori back in 1970. Today, Uncanny Valley is often shorthand for creepy-looking CGI, but Masahiro originally framed it as an unexpected drop in empathy the more human-like an artificial object was. Instead of being a linear relationship, he theorized we'd feel less empathy for a fake object the closer it got to looking human without actually passing for human. If you chart that out, you see the uncanny valley. Okay, so this is a little abstract. Can we use some actual examples to give the listeners? Uh, sure thing, Scott. Let me just get your reaction to these clips. Disassemble. Dead. Disassemble. Dead. No disassemble. Please escape. Oh, little Johnny Five. What a cute little robot. Okay, how about this one? How did we get into this mess? We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. I've got to rest before I fall apart. My joints are almost frozen. Oh, everybody's favorite prissy protocol droid, C-3PO. What a delight. And lastly... Well, you're coming. Where? Why, to the North Pole, of course. This is the Polar Express! <laughs> yes, do. Uh, a lot of the Uncanny Valley effect definitely has to do with the eyes. But a lot of it is also that animating human movement is just hard to do. Now, this definitely isn't a new problem either. Replicating realistic movement was also a struggle in the early days of hand-drawn animation. One solution to this was rotoscoping. This was developed by the iconic animator Max Fleischer in 1915. Fleischer originally envisioned this as a way to just speed up animation. It's kind of a cheat. Rotoscoping involves tracing over motion picture footage frame by frame. It looks real because it's captured directly from actual movement. Fleischer Studio used the technique most notably in Betty Boop cartoons and in the Superman cartoon in the early 40s. Once his patent on the technology expired, though, everybody from Disney to Looney Tunes, they all adopted the technique. Yeah, rotoscoping took off in animation, 
but eventually it found a home in special effects for live action films like Star Wars and Tron. Throughout all the 80s and the 90s, digital and interpolated rotoscoping techniques were developed, used in video games like Prince of Persia and to animated films like A Scanner Darkly. By the 1990s, optical motion capture, or as we in the industry call it, mocap, was innovating on the same problem rotoscoping originally tried to solve, how to authentically replicate human movement, this time in CGI. It's interesting. The video games actually led movies into adopting this technology. I mean, as far back as 1994, you had games like Virtua Fighter 2, combining motion capture with texture mapping to create eh, pretty realistic movements at the time. They originally approached military contractors to integrate the tech into their arcade machines. And what differentiates mocap from rotoscoping is that mocap can extract just the movements of an actor, which can be then represented in a 3D space, whereas rotoscoping required the entire outline of the footage. Rotoscoping is also a lot more time-consuming and expensive. 1999, though, was a big breakthrough for mocap. Up until that point, any mocap in movies was mostly used for shorter effect shots or in short surreal sequences like the x-ray scene from Total Recall or whatever. But with Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, yes, that movie, we got the first main character done entirely in mocap. I guess it's not inaccurate to call Ahmed best performance as Jar Jar Binks to be unforgettable. Although many have tried. The year after that, we also saw the first movie made primarily with mocap. Oh, that final fantasy movie. What was it? Um... Oh, no, I know. The Spirits Within, right? This was uh, Dead Eye Central. Had an all-star cast, too. Ming-Na Wen, Alec Baldwin, Bing Rames, Roz from Frasier. Um, actually, Scott, it was 2000's Sinbad Beyond the Veil of Mists, featuring the voices of Brendan Frazier, Leonard Nimoy, Jennifer Hale, and Mark Hamill. Although mocap was performed by various actors for each role. It was actually filmed in 1997, so really early stuff. Wow, why has nobody heard? I haven't even heard of that. Yeah, it looks like an original Xbox cutscene. But the big breakthrough for mocap came with The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, with Andy Serkis's portrayal of Gollum. Yeah, I mean, not only is it an iconic performance, but it was the first use of real-time motion capture system. This let directors and actors effectively see how a performance was being captured and rendered as a film was being shot something that previously could only be seen after days and weeks of processing. Since then, it's become a very essential part of big-budget blockbuster movies. It's powered the rise of comic book movie universes, multiple Star Wars trilogies. Heck, even they suited up Benedict Cumberbatch to do the mocap for Smog in the Hobbit movies. I think you mean Benedict Cumbersnitch. <laughs> Always. Motion capture is definitely a mainstream technology for visual effects. The question is, though, how long will that be the case? We've had two decades of advancement that have gone a long way to improve the believability of CGI. The industry now has a large sample size of what realistic motion looks like, combined with digital tools that make replicating that a lot easier. You'd think mocap might be on the outs. Well, certainly you have some animation that doesn't really want it or need it. They don't need the mocap. Look at a studio like Pixar, which, you know, has featured tons of human characters over the years, but relied on more traditional animators. And while mocap has dominated the special effects industry, Pixar has been downright puckish in rejecting it. In the credits to Ratatouille, they even included the credit 100% pure animation. No motion capture. <laughs> I think studios like Pixar might be the exceptions that prove the rule. And to be fair, they have the luxury of not having to create animated effects that have to interact with real human actors. Absolutely. One area we were really curious about were movie stunts. 
because it seemed like maybe a pure CGI approach would allow for stunts to be done with a scale and safety that you could not achieve with human actors. So we talked with Danielle Bergio, who has been doing stunt work for 20 years to find out what it's like to work in special effects-laden films and why humans are still important for stunts. No matter how big the budget of the movie, I think you really, you, you need humans and you definitely need stunt people. There's a certain amount you can do with computers, but first of all, the authenticity that I think is lacking. And no matter how good computers get, the audience is smart enough to know and to be able to see the difference. And sometimes it's very subtle because sometimes those the computer graphics can be so real and so advanced and so great. But even if it's just that tiny sliver of authenticity that's missing, the audience picks up on it. And I think it can really take you out of the story. As time goes on, I think it just gets more advanced. The, the computer effects become more advanced, but then also the capabilities of the stunts and the big action that they can do, it all becomes more advanced. It actually, in a lot of ways, ups the game because you know every movie that comes out, people want to see something newer and bigger and better and cooler. Just allows a lot more creativity, but you still need the you still need the bodies and you still need the talent to be able to pull it off. From everyone we talked to for this episode, there generally was excitement when it came to working with effects. Like Danielle said, it offers the ability to augment a performance and provides this expansive creative landscape to work in. Which isn't to say that it's without its challenges. Stump people are actors too. And the same challenge you have pulling off a dramatic scene in a green screen room in a suit covered in ping pong balls is a challenge for stunts as well. It's interesting how people think of authenticity when they think of humans, because we kept hearing that the problem with computers is they're actually too perfect. That's what makes something feel unreal to an audience. With humans, the little imperfections in how people interact and move their bodies are what lets our brains know that it's actually authentic. We spoke with Liam O'Brien about how this plays out on set. He has experience with both performing and directing mocap, and he breaks down why a CGI character can come off as inauthentic more because of its performance than its appearance. When you look at Tarkin in that recent Star Wars movie, you're looking at something so damn advanced, something that we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago as existing. So it, it is certainly to be lauded in the, in, in the fact that, that they could create something so close to reality that we can split hairs and go, ah, it's not quite there. I still think it, it is going to take maybe one more or two or three more evolutional leaps before they can erase the difference between the recorded footage of actors around that that stuff or those simulated people. Because you could tell human human communication is, is like jazz or jazz is like human communication probably. But when you get the actors together, mistakes and, and, and magic happens because there's an unpredictability to human communication. Oftentimes, you know, you're creating, you'll, you'll create dialogue that didn't exist. Improv happens uh, to a certain extent, varying extent on different projects. If you move that over to recreating Tarkin, he was created with a lot of love and TLC and, and, and attention to detail, but he was still created in a vacuum. And that quote unquote man you saw didn't didn't perform with anybody else. He, 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 he isn't a person. So it is it is really cyberpunk uh, because you are making the human soul dance with ones and zeros. 
Wow, the idea that mocap being cyberpunk makes me want to see Andy Serkis in a Snatcher adaptation. Yeah, it's really a great way to think about how technology can enhance a performance. All right, now as cool as that may be, Tom, the question remains, how long, how long can humans hold out before CGI is convincing enough on its own and we have to hang up our be ping pong balled wetsuits? <laughs> Keep those balls at the ready, Scott. Given the advancements in machine learning, I don't want to say it's impossible, but given that, at least for now, the intended audience of these effects is humans, it's going to be a pretty high bar to take them out of the effects equation entirely. Well, it's true. A human performer has the benefit of not having to, you know, convince an audience that they are real, the career of Tommy Wiseau notwithstanding. But we've also been here before with tech, like assuming computers will never be able to be humans at chess uh, or Go uh, or League of Legends, yet advances in generative adversarial networks have made all of those a reality in a pretty short amount of time. Yep, totally different set of problems, but tech can kind of surprise you in that way. Well, Scott, that just about wraps up season one of Current Geek Chronicles. So what can I do with all this mocap footage from this episode? Can I just say Send it over to Hammond to edit. Sure. Send it over to me and I'll take a look at it. Wait, send it over to you. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, Tom couldn't make it. So we were using some real-time mocap to put him in digitally. Pretty convincing, right? Yeah, but why did I have to wear this suit? I am just trying to keep our options open for post. By the way, eerily good impression of Tom's voice. It's a work in progress. Chronicles. Current Geek Chronicles is produced by Hammond Chamberlain and Rich Straffolino. Executive produced and hosted by Scott Johnson and Tom Merritt. Interviews provided by Danielle Bergia and Liam O'Brien. I will not be stopped. Ha 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 ha. 